two things changed my mind. One was intellectual, one was emotional. It was the schizophrenic nature of the British establishment at that point. Brussels is a hall of mirrors and an echo chamber together. Quality information should just not be the preserve of the elite. We threw away one of the most important negotiating levers. There is no time to waste. The future is in your hands. Make it bright. This is West Point with David Davis. The Warwick Economic Summit. The Warwick Economic Summit. Warwick Economic Summit. This week, we will be hearing from David Davis, Chief Negotiator of Brexit, interviewed by Therese Raphael, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. David Davis has had an extensive career, serving as Member of Parliament from 1987 to 1997, as well as serving in various positions such as Conservative Party Chairman, Shadow Deputy Prime Minister and Shadow Home Secretary. Recently, Davis had been an instrumental figure in campaigning for Brexit as Brexit Chief Negotiator from 2016 to 2017. Consequently, Davis had been appointed and worked as Secretary of State for exiting the European Union for a period of two years following the 2016 EU referendum and the United Kingdom's decision to leave the EU. We are delighted to host this interview, which discusses the European Union, Brexit, and what it means for the future of the United Kingdom. Raphael started by asking Mr Davis to set the scene and outline his views on the Brexit debate. First, it's a privilege to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Um, the, it's a good question because there's more than one answer. Uh, I, I was a, what you might term a reluctant Remainer until about six, seven years ago. And then two things changed my mind. One was intellectual, one was emotional. Um, the intellectual one was a slow burn, really. When we joined, we were the sick man of Europe. Uh, we'd had a very poor economic history. Uh, alongside us, Europe was growing at an average of 4% per annum. You know, we were tippling along at one or two, um, and our markets were shrinking. And we joined, and it did accelerate our, our, uh, our growth rate. Uh, until and and we and you could see it happening directly as a result of Europe because our our market share in Europe grew it about doubled actually over the course of the next decade or two. But then uh, what happened was the two things happened. Number one, partly care of Margaret Thatcher, you described as a Thatcherite, partly care of Margaret Thatcher, the single European market was uh, brought into being in effect. Uh, really, the single European. Um, regulatory area would be a better description of it but that's what it was and we made lots and lots of concessions as a result of that we gave up the right to veto things so our political power was diluted and at exactly the same time in 1992 the uruguay round came came about reduced all of the tariffs across the whole world probably the most one of the most important and least well studied uh, changes in global economics was the uruguay round uh, creation of the world trade organization and as a result, our market share in Europe started to decline uh, and our dependency on Europe also started to decline. That's why now we're around about half our exports go there. So that was the that was the intellectual one that I thought the bargain had changed from a very good economic bargain and a very light political bargain in terms of giving up our rights to one that was reversing. It's going the other way and it's accelerating the other way. 
So that was the that's the intellectual argument, but that didn't really tip me over. The thing that really tipped me over was a much more emotional thing, and it was the treatment of Greece after the failure of their membership of the euro. I mean, Greece was brought into the euro care of basically a fraud. I mean, their their American bank helped them dress up their national balance sheet, if you like, uh, effectively conceal their debts. They came into the European Union and, of course, in, sorry, into the, Europe, into the euro. Uh, and, of course, they couldn't maintain the they weren't competitive enough to maintain the position. And the response of the European Union wasn't to try and help them, maybe by giving them a revaluation, effective a de facto revaluation or something like that. It was actually to punish them. And they lost 25. I mean, what's happened to us in COVID is smaller than what happened to Greece uh, in economic terms as a result of the euro failure. And I thought, you know, and you had suicide rates going up, you had um, uh, infant mortality going up, you had 25% reduction in the consumption of food, you had hospitals being closed, you had tens or even hundreds of thousands of people leaving the country. And I just thought that was brutal cruelty. Uh, and frankly, that tipped me over. I thought this is an organization uh, in which I don't want to be a part, you know, um, because if it can treat me so, I'd seen it treat Switzerland badly, but uh, if it can treat its own members that way, what happens when we get into trouble? So that was, that was the backdrop. Interesting. Very long-winded answer, but thank it's quite... you. No, that's that's a very interesting answer. You know, we, we often hear uh, the very pact we want to take back control of our laws, our monies, our borders, and it, I think it's it's worth um, thinking through a little bit more what that what that meant to you individually. Um, so there you were. If I recall at the time, you know, some people had written your political obituary, but there you were at the most important, uh, you know, development in the country some would say since World War II. Uh, you were at the center of it. You had been appointed by Theresa May just to head up a new department, the Department uh, for Exiting the European Union, and to lead um, and prepare for the first trade talks that the country uh, had really entered into in decades. Can you uh, give us a sense of what your mindset was then. And I ask you that because you always seemed uh, supremely confident and chipper. And I often wondered at the beginning of these negotiations, you know, what keeps David Davis up at night? It seems like nothing. <laughs> Can well, you tell us what were your expectations? What was your mindset going into those negotiations? Well, you're right, the answer was nothing kept me up at night. <laughs> uh, I mean, only last week, um, uh, Philip Hammond, uh, who in a way was a sort of bête noir for me in the, in the cabinet, uh, bear in mind he's an old protege of mine, Philip Hammond uh, was talking about uh, my attitude in these things. And he said, you know, you could knock seven bells out of David with an iron bar. <laughs> And then and then 10 minutes later, you'll find him in the bar laughing about it. Well, that's what I tried. I mean, as a, as a negotiator, that is almost precisely what I tried to maintain because uh, we had um, uh, an interesting negotiation to do. Um, it, was, it was most, the biggest difficulty in the negotiation in many ways was not the European Union. It was the schizophrenic nature of the British establishment at that point. Um, you know, you, you, you had people who, I mean, if you, the real division in many ways between the so-called Brexiteers and the so-called Remainers 
was that the Brexiteers were always, always saying, right, what are the opportunities we can build out of this? Not all of them, but most of them. And the Remainers, most of them were thinking, my God, this is a terrible mistake. <laughs> How can we minimize the damage? You know? um, and, in, and the truth be told, the prime minister was in that second category, really. And she, she sort of said she was in the first, but really she was a damage limiter. And so you had that backdrop behind you. And we threw away right at the beginning, one of the most important um, negotiating levers. I mean, you may not remember, but, but before negotiations started formally, and it, actually during, I think it was during the general election, um, I did a, a, an interview on television and somebody said to me, what are going to be the key issues? And I said, money and timing. And he said, what do you mean timing? I said, well, the sequencing, because the European Union will want to sequence this to suit themselves. That's what they always do in negotiations. None of this was new. And I said, well, you know, the battle of the summer is going to be over sequencing. When we got back after the general election, back to Downing Street, it had been given away. You know, the, the negotiating team the Downing Street negotiating team, which basically uh, uh, replied to, as it were, answered the Prime Minister, had given sequencing away. So from that point forward, you know, I knew I had an uphill battle to get us back to a position where we could actually exercise some leverage. And, and, and therefore, to come back to your question about always looking smiling and chipper, I thought, well, we've just got to be utter, utterly reasonable. We've got to make them look unreasonable by being so reasonable. And that meant you also got to look confident at the same time. So just to be clear, you had no idea that they were going to give away on the sequencing that this no. was because th hmm. so that came from downing street that was something theresa may had agreed and you well, just had to work with that yeah basically yes yeah i'm, I'm summarizing it but yes basically yeah. okay were you surprised by the unity that was shown by the eu um and uh and the way they approached these negotiations no, not really. The, 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 there were some surprises, but I'll tell you those in a minute. But the, yeah. the, um, the, you, you may, again, you may or may not remember that right at the beginning, I also said the first three years will matter less than the last three weeks, you know. Um, actually, it turned out to be four years, you know, but never mind. The last three weeks was right, broadly. In fact, I'm almost surprised it finished a week early. Um, because you know, it finished right about Christmas rather than rather than New Year's Day. Um, and that was always going to be the case. Um, the European Union and the Commission in particular are very good at uh, holding the pack together, always very good at holding the pack together. And they have mechanisms designed for that and they're well designed mechanisms for that purpose. And the um, and that's what they did, as as we expected. Now, what I had intended to do uh, and was not to try and break that up, but to try and understand by direct contact clearly what each one wanted most, so that when we designed our packages the other way around, um, we were able to create something which was attractive to everybody and didn't and didn't hit sore points or red lines for any particular country that was uh what we now bear in mind there's one that you've got the interest of the 27 but you've also got the interests of the commission itself the institution if you like the echo chamber of brussels and my god uh, uh you know brussels is a hall of mirrors and an echo chamber together you know um and of course the very federalist instincts 
of Germany and France in particular, right? And that, that separate thing sometimes broke down into the so-called punishment agenda. You know, we can't let Europe, we, sorry, we can't let Britain be seen to succeed out of this. Um, now I knew that would run for a while and it ran uh, recurrently for a while, but my expectation was this will get tighter and tighter and tighter. And then we would uh, get to a position at the end, which is where Boris eventually got to. Uh, uh, now, what, what broke that? Two things broke that. Um, one of them was the sequencing. The other one was, um, it, it's quite hard to characterize, but let me try. At the beginning, we, I was always conscious that Northern Ireland would have, with the only land border, uh, uh, in uh, with Europe for us, with the European Union for us, would be an issue. And I've, I've grown up with the with the. I was eighteen at the time of the beginning of the troubles and so on. And what that what 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 that told me was we're going to have to focus on this. So we talked to the Irish government, and at that time, at the beginning, both the head of the Irish Revenue uh, and Customs and the head of the British Revenue Customs, these are civil servants I'm talking here, said there will not be a problem. We will be able to maintain an invisible border just as we do now by using the techniques we use now. And then that changed quite sharply towards the end of 2017. And then one Sunday, uh, again, un unbeknownst to me, there's obviously been a conversation. One Sunday, Theresa, the prime minister, rang me up at home here uh sunday afternoon in early december and she said we have come up with a new form of words uh on the uh irish issue and i hadn't even known that they were actually engaged the number 10 were engaged in the negotiation that week um and uh, i said well so what are they and she there were a variety of things to argue about but the the key one was she said, we've agreed full alignment between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland on regulation. And I said to her, well, Theresa, that's contrary to your own speeches on this matter. And, uh, and she said, well, it, it only means full alignment of outcomes. Now, for those who are not sort of aficionados of this subject, there's a huge difference between a, fish, a, a full alignment of regulations and full alignment of outcomes of regulations. But, and it's an, it's an ideological and practical difference. Anyway, she said full And I said, well, have they agreed it's full alignment of outcomes? And, she said, and then she switched. She said, David, we have to make progress. And I thought, no, we don't. You know, this is this is part of the time when we don't have to make progress. Anyway, um, she said, but I need you to agree with this. So I said, well, let me think about it. And the next day I saw, and it was the day we went to have lunch with um, uh, with Jean-Claude Juncker uh, and Michel and, uh, and, uh, and others. And uh, of course, it caused something of a fuss in Northern Ireland, put it mildly. Um, and the, uh, we had to go back twice, basically, back that day and then back later in the week. And to my amazement, the House of Commons went along with it, indeed welcomed the, the deal to get us, as it were, over that hurdle to the next stage of negotiations. But that was the point at which um, the whole pivot of, of the negotiation turned. 
because once you once you started down that route, you end up in, in inevitably with the withdrawal, withdrawal agreement we had with all of the links to Northern Ireland, which are now causing trouble in the current arrangements. Um, and that's where it started. And from there came the argument about right to diverge, which eventually ended up with me resigning. But the uh, that's that's where the pivot went. It was it was giving in to the pressure on that when we didn't need to. And then it's very interesting what you've said about Theresa May, and you've also mentioned um, the Philip Hammond interview in which he felt that Theresa May didn't really know what she wanted, that her uh, speeches gave mixed impressions to all sides of the Conservative Party. As we know, your party was very divided over what it wanted out of Brexit. What do you think doomed her approach politically? Was it not understanding uh, what she wanted? Was it, um, you know, what convinced you? Was it that May's approach simply wasn't going to work? Was it that that moment where the Northern Ireland uh, issue was not clear that was not clearly set out? Well, no, there wasn't an individual moment, uh, at least not in those terms, because that was in December, and we yeah. had basically a six-month battle inside government uh, over this whole question of right to diverge. If you if you believe in take back control, if that's the fundamental uh, element of this decision, which is after all what the Brexiteers all argued. I mean, I had, as you heard, different perspectives on this, but take back control was the key. And there's no point leaving unless you command your own the basic parts of your own economy, the basic parts of your own foreign policy, and all that. Um, uh, then uh, it, that's key. So the argument over the so-called right to diverge took place between December and July of the next year. Now, why did this, why did this uh, arise then? Well, earlier in 2017, we'd had a general election. And the intention of the general election, because Philip Hammond and I both agreed that it was uh, probably the best thing to do, um, the intention of the general election was to give her a sufficient uh, majority in parliament, not to have to look behind her all the time, right? So it was, it was to increase her power. It, precisely what Boris did later successfully. That was what she was trying to do at the time. And in theory, if you believe the polls, we should have won by over 100, you know, but, but the way she ran the election failed. I mean, I think she would herself admit this. I, I mean, I like Theresa, and I don't want to be overly critical of her, but um, the she would tell you, I think, that that, that election strategy completely failed. It just didn't work, um, and she lost. She lost what little majority, or she lost most of her majority, basically. Um, so that led to a number of other things. She got rid of her two advisors. That's Nick Timothy, and Fiona Hill. Right. Um, both very, very important to her. They had been her right and left hand through all her time at the Home Office and her time before that. They've been with her, I think, for a decade. Um, and so very important to her. And Timothy in particular was a very strong Brexiteer. He had a very clear idea what he thought it should look like. And so to very likely, she, she rested on that. She rested on what he said and so on. Then she fired them after the, after the election. Um, Many of the party blamed them. I'm not sure, but that's what happened. Um, she fired them, and the um, the result was she then surrounded herself with what you might think of as normal Whitehall apparatchiks. Well, you know, if I went round Whitehall uh, uh, to to try to find a permanent secretary who voted for Brexit, I think I'd be looking for a very long time. <laughs> 
you know. Um, of course, there were some civil servants about Brexit, but Whitehall's mindset, its zeitgeist, its fundamental belief was all built around continuing European Union. So she was suddenly surrounded by people. Remember what I said at the beginning about the difference between the opportunity maximizers, who are the Brexiteers, and the risk minimizers, who are the Remainers. And she was surrounded by people who were trying to deliver Brexit, but from a complete risk minimization point of view. And that really made the whole negotiating strategy as number 10 Downing Street saw it, very cautious, prone to give away things like, uh, like, the, um, uh, like the sequencing, prone to give in to, to the, the pressure on, uh, on the Irish border and so on. And that's what happened. Um, and so, you know, I think under other circumstances, Theresa May would have been a very good prime minister, but I think under these circumstances, she, the sequence of events led to a position where uh, I think Philip Hammond is probably right. She wasn't sure what entirely she wanted out of it. What he said, I mean, I think in the interview, and he said it afterwards to me, he said, and it's something I wasn't really conscious of, he said, he said if he went to Theresa, she, she would dismiss everything until she brought me into the room and see whether I could live with it. So I became I became a sort of litmus test, you know. If I and he he actually he played back to me. I talked to him after this interview, and he played back. He, he said, you know, if you said, and typically you'd say something like, "I can make that work," or "Let me take that away and rewrite it. I think I can make it work." Something like that. Then then she'd then she'd listen. So for for a long time that was the the the, the base of the first year or so, and then after she suddenly surrounded herself with. Um, what was, if you like, sort of the old Cameron negotiating team and uh, the, the standard Remainer civil servants, she, she, she lost her direction, I think, to be frank. Yeah. Let's fast forward uh, a little bit. We have a Brexit deal now. It's what is commonly known and called a hard you know, Brexit. It may not have quite been the Canada plus, plus, plus you wanted, which, but it's a, it's a deal that, that is maximalist in terms of the sovereignty and the control uh, that the UK has claimed from it. Now, I guess my, my question here are, are twofold. Um, given your experience with the EU and your deep knowledge of British politics, do you think we are likely to see uh, the deal result in, in closer relations? Are the uh, problems that we're seeing so far going to be smoothed by the various committees that get together and try to work out the kinks in the deal? Or do you think, as we've seen um, over the last week with the triggering of Article 16, uh, and then, uh, and, then, and then quickly untriggering Article 16, uh, a continuation of uh, pushing on, you know, the bruises of contentiousness. It seems like it could go either way. There are mechanisms within the trade cooperation agreement for, for uh, closer cooperation or for a lot of contentiousness. And uh, you mentioned Switzerland, a sort of Swiss style, never ending negotiation to go on. How do you see things uh, progressing? Uh, and you know, if I could also ask you, what opportunities do you see Brexit now that we have it providing for young people for, for Britain? Where do you see that happening? Uh, yeah, the first thing first, I mean, I, I actually complained in my brief speech uh, on the, uh, the, the, the treaty, the, the negotiation outcome, that we actually needed to spend 
a long, long time. We, Parliament, have spent a long, long time actually debating this. We had a day, frankly, but we should, we should spend a long, long time because this will, this is not over. You know, it's going to go on for a couple of years at least. You know, as we settle down, and I think broadly speaking, um, it will settle down. There will be friction points. There's no doubt about that. Um, but uh, it will settle down. But the the, let me explain why I think it, it will. F from the beginning of this exercise, the uh, arguments about regulation, in a way, have been on a false premise. Everybody sort of assumed, all right, we're going to cancel all the, all the rules that cover the car industry. We're going to cancel all the rules that cover chemi chemical industry. And uh, No, we were never going to do that. We were never going to do that. Indeed, the car industry rules are actually de derived from the United Nations and the and the and the uh, European Union has only basically modifies them slightly as they go through. Um, what's going to happen is that I think the union is going to realise that what we said and what I said actually uh, is that the regulatory changes, if anything, will be just simplifying. They won't change outcomes. Um, you know, we're not going to make cars less safe uh, or, or food, you know, more hazardous to eat or whatever. Um, uh, we're going to try and simplify those. Um, we, what we will see, however, is us going different regulatory routes for new industries. Now, we had a sort of stark demonstrator of this with the vaccine episode. Um, because, because we weren't in the EMA, we were able effectively to, ultra, to speed up our regulatory process which knocked a bit of time out of the uh, out of the uh, about a month I think out of the out of the process um, now what I would expect to see and what I was always been expecting to see is nothing as fast as that nobody forecasts that but um, in all sorts of new industries artificial intelligence genetics the downstream industries of those the pharmaceuticals and so on slow changes in that to actually try and get the best outcome and that there you might see frictions where they might say well we don't want your self-driving cars or we don't want to but that's that's a few years down the road that's not now you know but the, the where we are now the next couple of years will be a, a rather gritty um uh sort of sideways uh, movement towards some stability in, in a couple of years and that's where we'll be now what about the what about the youngsters? Well, let, let me let me take the, the, the first thing, um, the first thing that saw if I was standing in Warwick now, I mean, Warwick is the the I think the biggest university in the UK in terms of Erasmus, which we're no longer in. Right. What's going to be quite important, uh, certainly for people like me, is that the replacement scheme, which is supposed to be global rather than European, the Turing scheme actually works well at the moment it's not not massively funded frankly it probably needs a bit more funding to be honest um but you can't sort of compare it straightforwardly with erasmus because not all of our funding in erasmus went to our students it went some of it went to to the sort of group aspect so things like that we're going to have to work on we are going to have to work on um, but also out of this will come a completely different national strategy and a whole series of other places our approach to research and development has got to be different now. We have already said we're effectively going to double R&D spending in this country. Um, uh, uh, you know, we're going to have to start doing things like building an MIT of the North. We're going to have to start doing things like uh, re-engineering the classroom. There's a whole series of things we've got to do, which are not directly 
directly sort of written into the Brexit, Brexit agenda, but they're made necessary by the fact that Brexit has happened. You know, we're in a new world now, and, and that this was this was this was my view before we had coronavirus. Now we've had coronavirus. The shock effect on the entire global economy is going to require us to be quite nimble and quite clever about responding to it. You know, so mm -hmm. so that's going to be more important for the opportunities of of the students hopefully listening today. And David, just to be clear, so your your argument here is not that. Uh, EU membership prevented uh, the UK from doing some of these things from a, a, a more robust research budget for build, from building an MIT of the North, but leaving provides an impetus uh, and, and an imperative for doing those things. Is yeah. that clear? I mean, um, imperative is the right word, I think. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And on the, uh, just also to clarify, on the vaccine approval, my understanding is that there was there was nothing about, I mean, being within the EMA would not have prevented the MHRA from uh, approving that vaccine when it did and from uh, establishing a, a rolling review. That, but, but again, perhaps if I'm, if I'm understanding your point correctly, that leaving again, it, it's, it's a mindset that says we must move, we, we, we're on our own, we must move quickly. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure about the truth of the MHRA uh, issue because the difficulty with these things is people reassert things differently after the event to what they were before. You know, you see it all the time, particularly with rules and regulations. Um, uh, and uh, the, if we'd been still in, the pressure would have been on us to be a part of the whole deal. You know, just not not just not just the EMA, but also the acquisition arrangements, and and we would probably have gone along with it. You know, uh, and so we would have been, you know, uh, a few million behind where we are now. So uh, and and but it, but nevertheless, um, you know, the, the 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 you're right as well. The imperative is different where we are now. It also means the other imperatives, um, uh, which are quite important. The other thing that's going to change about the world economy in the next 20 years, and you can't disentangle economics and politics here, is the status of the West vis-a-vis -vis China and vis-a-vis -vis Russia. So um, uh, America at the moment is the biggest economic and military power in the world. It won't be in 20 years time. Right? It will need to be a moral leader of the rest of the world in that the two other biggest English-speaking nations, in terms of importance, are India and us. So we'll have a role to fulfil there. How does that matter? Well, let me just take one example right now. There's a, a, a fair old fight going on in Parliament about the uh, about the new trade bill, and, and it was about it's about and it's driven by the Chinese behavior over things like Huawei, the Chinese behavior over things like the Uyghurs, over the concentration camps, and so on. You know, trade and politics are getting wrapped together again and what alliances you pick what stances you take and so on um, are going to be much more important now Europe will be I, I can tell you now will be softer than us and the Americans in some of the dealings with Putin uh, with Putin's Russia uh, and and with China and so we're going to have to make up our own mind and there will be consequences because if we fall out with China as we may from time to time there will be economic consequences for us. So, so there's quite a lot of steering, quite a lot of finding our way in this about to come. Okay. 
We are now getting some questions through from our audience, and uh, yep. I thought it would be remiss not to give them, uh, put them to you. So let me let me put a few of these questions to you. Uh, so one of them is also uh, one that I uh, that I thought would be important for you to address. I'm glad somebody has has brought it up. How do you respond to claims that Brexit is financially hurting the average British person? So you know we we know that there is a economic loss. Uh, to do with Brexit. We know that the red tape, the uh, the charges, some of the uh, frictions that have been introduced are not mere teething problems. You know, how, how do you how do you sort of square that with um, well we don't know they're not mere teething problems. We don't know yet. You remember you remember when Chouen Lai was asked what he thought of the French Revolution, he said it was too soon to tell. You know, well <laughs> that is certainly true about some aspects of Brexit right now um, and some elements um, are well let me let me take, pick an example um, the, the, the there's been on the news uh, there's obviously pressures at Folkestone which is causing delays about uh, of imports into the UK um, now there are two reasons for that um, and the one which is in a sense the most unforgivable is ours our government hasn't got the administration right to allow uh, to, to allow the pieces in. When I was in government, and I don't know what's changed since, um, we said, right, we're going to just drop the checks on a lot of these things because they're coming from countries which we previously trusted. So if it's coming from Europe, what's changed in Europe to mean we have to check these now when we didn't before? So the government itself has got to get a grip on what it's doing there. Uh, in another area, fisheries, say, for example, that fisheries is sufficiently small that we'll have an, we, we should be able to, as it were, buy, buy our way out of that problem. Uh, in terms of the longer run, I just I, I, I don't think I don't think that there will be an economic penalty for Brexit um, so long as we do the sorts of things I've been talking about. But we do have to take a grip of this. Now, coronavirus has made it difficult to do that. But come May, June, when we emerge from this lockdown uh, and we are into a period when we are likely to have uh, concluded in the summer the rest of the vaccination program, we're going to have to do it. And if we do the things I'm talking about, along with economic policies to go with it, which at the moment mean no increases in taxes, it means some deregulatory work, I expect to see the economy grow. The Bank of England today said it'll be back to the level it was before coronavirus and also therefore before Brexit uh, within a year. I think they're probably right, but only if we do it right. You have disagreements with the EU, as say Scotland, um, you have disagreements with uh, the rest of the UK. Was that really, you know, was that reason enough for leaving? Oh yeah, look, uh, the, the, the reason I cited Greece, Greece wasn't, as I said, was, wasn't the only one, but the reason I cited Greece was the behavior of the European Commission towards Greece when it was in distress was extraordinary. It's a function of the behavior of the Commission in this context. And just so your listener understands, it was a 25% reduction in the economy. It was a pretty much destruction of the public sector. It was increases in suicide rates. It was massive increases in unemployment. It was increases in, in, um, uh, in infant mortality. It was failing to pay doctors. All of these things because the commission didn't step back in as it should have done 
to help them out. To a lesser extent, similar things happen in Italy, in Spain, mm -hmm. uh, in, in Portugal, and in Ireland. It didn't help anybody, frankly, but, but Greece was actively damaged by European policies. And it's the, it's, the, it's the willingness to do that. It's not the fact it's Greece, it's the willingness to do it that was the problem from my point of view. That question also mentioned Scotland and it made me think about um, how the arguments for Brexit, uh, how they scan over to the now very um, pressing debate about Scottish nationalism and, and where that goes. And, we often hear that the 2016 Brexit referendum was won in part because logical arguments simply can't compete with um, with emotional ones. And is there um, an emotional argument, a values-based argument that you think is compelling that Boris Johnson and the government and your party can make that would hold the union together? Well, Two answers. Number one, yes, I, I do. I mean, the, the, the simple truth is that the success of the entire United Kingdom has been dependent on all of us. I mean, we couldn't have done it without the Scots and they couldn't have done it without us. Uh, and indeed the Welsh and the Northern Irish and the Irish, in fact, uh, as, as well. So that's one part. But the other thing I'd say to you, Therese, is, 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 is this dismissal of the Brexit argument as an emotional argument, in many ways, I think is uh, arises partly because the two sides are going to talk past each other. It's not. It's not actually accurate. Let me and let me give you an an, an extremely uh, gritty uh, example. One of the things that Remainers said is about Brexit. Oh well, you're riding on the emotional argument about immigration. Well, I went to all the red wall seats during the referendum campaign and the uh, and indeed afterwards in the election. And I remember lots and lots of people talking to me in these terms, but I'll give you one example. The man involved was a painter and decorator from West Yorkshire, right? He was an intelligent man, but he you know, was a working class, um, uh, sort of upper working class, lower middle class character. And, and I, he said, I want to leave. And I said, why? And he said, immigration. And I said, well, don't you like foreigners? You know? um, and he said, oh, no, he said said, if I were a Bulgarian or a Romanian or a Pole, I would be here in Britain too, because they can earn three times as much here as they can back home. So I said, so where's the problem? What's wrong with it? He said, Mr. Davies, I haven't had a pay increase for 10 years. Now, that's not, a, that's not, a, that's not it may be an emotional argument, but it's not an irrational argument right. from his point of view, right? Uh, and, and I think that's very, very important that we recognise that what we think of sometimes as bigotry or we think of sometimes as an emotional argument actually has got some substance behind it in terms of his own interest in democracy. Now, come back to Scotland. I mean, I worry, I'll be frank with you, I worry about the future integrity of the kingdom. Um, uh, and indeed, one of the reasons I was fussed about Northern Ireland is I thought it might create a rather bad example for the rest of the kingdom if we've got a separated piece of the kingdom there. But when I talk, I mean, I go to Scotland reasonably frequently um, um, and, and I've got a lot of Scots friends. My wife's family comes from Scotland and they are, they are, they are very rational people about their own interest. And they, they know that they're going to have to do a calculation about what will happen in the event they decide to leave in terms of money and so on. And I'd be, I'd be blunt, the, the impact for Scotland of, 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 leaving Europe, uh, of leaving the United Kingdom would be pretty difficult financially. Um, that's not for me. 
the biggest argument. The biggest argument for me is a much bigger one about our common culture and our common civilization and the importance of the Scottish Enlightenment in, in British history and, and, and the contributions they make. I make a selfish argument too. I, you know, I want them to stay because I think they're valuable to us. Uh, and I think actually all those arguments get listened to. Um, so I wouldn't jump the gun on what's going to happen either in the, in the Scottish election coming up or indeed in the in the, uh, any referendum that comes afterwards uh, i think i think we are perfectly capable of winning that argument one of the examples that's worth looking at i think you may even have written about it actually was canada was it you that wrote about, I, I wrote i wrote an article on on uh, i may, may, may have been by you about canada i lived in canada once upon a time for a few years um, and canada went through a really difficult time when the quebecois were wanting to leave and there was a huge fear and disruption and so on. And then it settled down. And it settled down partly because they've, they've got a more federal solution than we have. And one thing I think we have to do is to think hard about whether we can develop, develop a federal solution which does a better job than what we have now. Do you think there should be um, a, a two-part referendum for Scotland? Or do you think there's a structure that can uh, avert a, a sort of one-off vote? Or do you think there should be no no second referendum, no ND2? And somebody's asked, do you believe we're in a constitutional crisis with Brexit highlighting this? So right. I think, I, think, I, think I, I don't think there should be another referendum soon. I'm, I'm at odds with some of my friends. Alex Salmon's one of my friends. I'm at odds with some of my friends on this. But I don't think, because I think it should be, I mean, uh, during the last referendum on, on on Scotland, it was a once in a once in a, quote their words once in a lifetime uh, 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 event, um, just like the European referendums were effectively not quite once in a lifetime, once in a generation. Um, uh, do I think we should do something about the constitution? Yeah, I think one of the great mistakes that was made by the UK government back when the Scotland Act created devolution was we didn't give them tax raising powers then. I said so at the time. I was a public accounts committee chairman at the time. I said, you are creating, you're creating a sort of dependency parliament. This is ridiculous. You know, they're a responsible country. They're going to elect their own, their own parliamentarians. Why can't they raise their own taxes? And Gordon Brown was very poo-pooed it <laughs> at the time. If we had done that, we might have had a slightly different dynamic now than we have now. I would do the same now with respect to federalism. I would look for a more federal solution than we currently have. We, we, we've got to learn as the United Kingdom to get ahead of the argument, not to trail behind it. That's the Canadian example. The Canadian example is they got ahead of the argument and now Canada is a, uh, uh, you know, is, is, is a, is a settled state. This topical interview was incredibly interesting to follow against the backdrop of the United Kingdom entering a turbulent transition period, and it was fascinating to hear David Davis's views on Brexit and his role in the Brexit negotiations. We are so pleased to have hosted David Davis at the Warwick Economic Summit 2021, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of WestPod. You can find more information about the summit, new releases, and more content on our social media, which are linked in the show notes. Next week, we will be sharing a panel discussion on global inequalities featuring Jeffrey Sachs, Joseph Stiglitz, Ravi Kambour, Ntuli Nkube, Petya Koeva-Brooks, and chaired by Stephanie Flanders.